you have a copy of the scriptures with you, I hope you do, you can turn it to the book of Romans, the New Testament, it needs to be closer to the back than the front, pull it up on your device or look in the front table of contents if you need to, if not we'll have it on the screen, but Romans, we're going to start in chapter 11, <coughs> before we do, I just want to make sure you're aware of something, uh, many of you uh, may not be familiar with Miss Lynn Rischker, uh, who was a big part of Dublin Bible Church for a long time, uh, but I know that many of you are, and so just want to make sure that you're aware um, that she, we, we received a letter uh, from her in the last few days here um, on campus, and so I've got that letter set back on the table in the back, and it is two things. Uh, it's just kind of a little update from Lynn, and, and a thank you uh, for helping her move and all the effort that was put in, and so uh, be sure to read that, and then secondly, it is uh, an invite to uh, come to South Carolina and see her, uh, I believe for an open house. Uh, I, I do not recall the details in this moment, but she's having an open house. Um, she said in the letter, by the way, that she only has 20 boxes left unpacked, which if you help pack, um, she's been busy, okay, because <laughs> I wouldn't have been surprised if she said 200 unpacked. But uh, she's been getting after it, getting the house ready, and wanted to invite anybody who might be in the area of vacation or whatever, or wanted to come up, make the drive just for that. Um, if you know Lynn, check out that letter in the back. I'm sure it'll encourage your heart, all right? Uh, I want to share with you this morning. I don't think I've shared this here before, but if I have, you can uh, let me know later and make fun of me for my foggy memory. But uh, when I was in college uh, hanging out with a group of friends, and uh, we decided we were going to go out to dinner, and we went to a steakhouse, and we were eating, and uh, we all had little side jobs as we were in college, had a little bit of pocket change, so we thought, you know, we were we were big guys, we were the big dogs, and never forget, we're sitting around the table, and we're just being just ridiculous college guys and talking big conversation, and uh, somehow somebody brings up the word connoisseur. And he says, well, I'm a connoisseur of, and I don't remember what it was, but he, he could have been saying, I'm a connoisseur of fine baseball cards. I only have the best. And we decided we were going to play on the word connoisseur, and we liked it, and so we were laughing it up like we were big, important people and saying, I'm a connoisseur of great popsicles, ha-ha, and whatever. We just kept the connoisseur thing, kept going on throughout the night, and we laughed, had a good time, and probably overdid it, and, and I was there, so I'm sure we overdid it because I'm a threat. And, and we laughed quite a bit, and the night wraps up. The, the waiter comes and gets our check, brings us our stuff back, and as everybody else starts to get up and leave, I'm fixing to get up and leave. And my cousin Brent, who's with us, he's part of this group. You, you just have to know Brent, all right? If Brent was here, um, I would say, hey, hey, Brent, you're quirky, right? And he would go, oh, yeah, right? So he's not offended by his quirkiness, all right? But he's a quirky dude, right? And so everybody gets up after this connoisseur conversation and starts to leave the table. And uh, Brent, after he knows everybody else is out of earshot, I guess feeling safe with me, says, uh, hey, Jason. I said, what, man? He said, uh, my favorite dinosaur is a pterodactyl. <laughs> and you can imagine, um, I looked about as lost as you felt when you first heard that, Right? I just stared at him with big, wide eyes and said, man, what? What are you, your favorite? And he said, well, y'all said y'all like the connoisseur. I like the pterodactyl. <laughs> I thought, man, he has sat here for a whole dinner with us cutting it up and saying connoisseur. And he's been sitting there thinking, I can't wait to say, well, I'm a pterodactyl of, right? He loves the pterodactyl. This whole conversation for him, he, maybe he's had a few laughs, but it really hasn't held a lot of meaning because he didn't understand the lingo. Right, a connoisseur is an expert or one who's a, a great judge or assessor, sometimes a collector of certain things. And, and here he is thinking it's a dinosaur, right? But, but you've seen it be true in your life that if you don't know the lingo, the conversation is hard to benefit from, isn't it? There's a lot of places we could go with this. 
you went to the gym for the first time, and they started talking about things like EMOMs, every minute on the minute workouts, or AMRAPs, as many reps as possible. They started telling you to do things like, like thrusters or chippers or burpees, who, for the love, I don't know why anybody named it that, okay? <laughs> but I, it probably is accurate, because after I did a few, I was like, I do think that my food is about to come up, okay? And so... <laughs> made sense but you you step into that environment and people start to say a bunch of different stuff and if you're not familiar with it you're a little bit lost start to play an instrument maybe right if you ever tried to pick up guitar and somebody started talking to you about your guitar's fretboard or the frets or the nut of the guitar or a capo or adjusting the action or i mean it's just like man i'm lost right i have no idea what you're talking about for me it happened again with when I took some training and started to discover a little bit of skill in the area of web design, and they started talking to me about hypertext markup language and, and file transfer protocol and a plug-in and all these different... And I'm just going, what are you talking about? For some of us, you don't have to raise your hand, right? Because I'm at that uncomfortable age where it's true for me, so you don't have to admit it, okay? But social media is like part of our world now, and some of you don't have a clue what a TikTok or a Tic Tac or a, or a tweet or an X, which is it Twitter or X or what is it? We don't, we don't know how to post a story. What do you mean a story? I thought I just put what I thought out there. I didn't know it had to be a story. You tell me people look at the story before they look at the status. What's the difference between the status and the story? I have absolutely no idea. What's the difference between the like button and the love button? Do they get extra points in this world of social media? Like how does it all play out, right? See, so you will never fully benefit from a conversation if you're unfamiliar with the terminology. I would argue, and, and I really had to think about this, because this is a big statement I'm about to make. I had to make sure I felt really confident about this, but I would say to you, I believe this with my whole heart, that the concept of holiness is the most regularly and dangerously misunderstood concept in the history of all humanity. Right, that if we don't understand what Scripture is talking about when it's saying that God is holy, or sometimes it's saying that we are holy, and it's talking about us in such a sense that we are holy, and that was already a done deal, it seems. And there are times where we're commanded to go and be holy, so to do holy things, to live in a holy way. If we don't understand some of that, we're going to really fail to benefit from a lot of the rich truth of God's grace found in Scripture. So for the next few weeks, we want to tap into a study series called The Holiness of God and Us. And the hope is that we'll see in Scripture, as over 600 different times it references holiness, right? We're not going to tap into the whole big picture and understand every minute detail, but, but maybe just in, in big concept that we can grasp what is the Scripture talking about when it calls God holy, and what is it talking about when it calls us holy, and what is it talking about when it calls us to be holy? I want to start a little bit differently today, kind of backwards than what I would typically do. Typically, we would jump in the passage and then we'd extract from that. But I want to go ahead and give you kind of my working definition for the holiness of God. All right. And then I want to show it to you in the passage for today. All right. So when I'm talking about the word holy or I'm talking about holiness and it is ascribed to God, we're talking about who God is when we say holy. Here's what I'm thinking about. All right. And I think this is going to help you a ton. I'm thinking that about the, the ineffably awe-inspiring purity of God. Does that help a lot? You good? Right? Ready to pack up and go home? The definitions are supposed to make it clearer, not worse, right? You're going, what is ineffably? Right? I had to use that word because ineffably is the only word that makes any sense for what I'm trying to say here. To be ineffable is to be beyond full description. 
Right? It means we can see it, we can understand it to a point, but it's beyond full description. We don't have terminology big enough for it. We don't have language big enough. Nobody's ever created a word that will work out and, and explain what this means. I'm reminded of an old comedy skit from, from some skit show back in the day. I don't even recall, but it was a talk show host who was talking about one of his favorite concert artists. And, and he's trying to come up with a word to say how good the concert was that he experienced. And he said, oh, it was wonderful. No, 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 no. It was beautiful. No, 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 no. Then he said, there is no word to say how wonderful this was. I'll be forced to make up one, so I'll do it now. And he sits and he thinks for a minute, and he said, it was scrumtralescent. <laughs> he had to make up his own word so that he could say, I don't know how to talk about this, so I'll just have to say a different word. I have to make something else. Just whatever comes out, it's just blowing my mind. It's scrumtralescent, right? So if you hear me say that, you know that I'm talking about something too big for any other word I've ever heard. I'm just here to say to you today, you're going to see it in the passage, I believe, that God's holiness is beyond our full description. We can understand it, and we should be grateful for that. But we should also be grateful for the fact and encouraged by the fact and take comfort in the fact that it is beyond our fullest description. It's ineffable. It's awe-inspiring. Right? That one's kind of easier <laughs> You know, awe-inspiring from when you stood on the edge of a beautiful beach and looked out at water that was endless and, and a sunset that was beautiful, and you just went, wow. Right? You knew awe-inspiring when you maybe went and looked at the Grand Canyon. It just blew your mind. You knew awe-inspiring when you went to that stadium that you'd hoped to go to for your whole life, and you sat in the crowd of people, and you felt the environment, and you just went, wow, this is big. You knew awe-inspiring when they placed that child in your hands for the first time, and you looked at it. Especially the first time I looked at my oldest son, he looked just like a small version of adult me. He didn't look like baby me. He looked like a sm- like Benjamin Button. It was very strange. <laughs> it was awe-inspiring. Awe is what happens when you see something and you go, wow. That causes me to appreciate and have great wonder. When I see that, I go, whoa. We're talking about the holiness of God. We're talking about ineffably awe-inspiring purity of God. Purity matters. In fact, I would argue that you can tell how much you care about something by how much its purity matters to you. If you don't care if it's pure or not, you probably don't care that much about whatever the topic at hand is. Right? So if you go to a a great steakhouse, I said I went to one earlier, you're not satisfied with 99% organic grain-fed beef and 1% dirty diaper. (laughs) You want 100% the pure, real stuff, right? For that matter, you're not even satisfied with 99 beef and then some black beans in there to just mix it in a little bit. You're like, I'm at a steakhouse. I want it to be meat, right? You're not satisfied if your paycheck is 80% U.S. cash and and 20% monopoly money. No, I want pure. I want it all to be in the kind I can spend here, right? Like I enjoy monopoly, but I'm not doing that right now. I'm talking about I need to buy groceries, right? I need it to be all that stuff, right? You're, You're not excited about compromising the idea of purity when it's your kids and who they're hanging out with. Maybe it's a, a daughter with a boyfriend. You're going, no, it's, it's 100%. Right? That's what I'm talking about. See, the more that we value something, the more we care about its purity. And I'm hoping and praying, it's been my prayer, that God would, would wrap up our minds and our hearts and elevate us and stretch us out to try to grasp the ineffable, awe-inspiring purity of God. To know what it's like and what the Bible's talking about when it says he 
is holy. And what is it talking about when it calls us to respond in holiness? I think we'll see this in this passage today. Romans chapter 11. The book of Romans is written by the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the church in a certain city. I'll give bonus points to whoever comes up with the city first. Any takers? I love y'all so much. Man, I, I really thought you were going to come hard on that one. Like, I thought that was the one we were going to, everybody's going to yell out, Rome. Everybody's like, I think it's Rome, but I'm not going to say anything, right? It might be Macon. I don't know, right? So anyways, um, he's writing this letter to, my wife, don't, don't, don't laugh that hard. That hurts my feelings. Anyways, um, it's good when you laugh heartily. When you laugh so hard that I'm worried if I said something silly, that's the problem. Anyways, we'll talk about it later. Let me get a drink. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome. And what's happened in, in the church in Rome is that there was an, an emperor there who thought that all Jewish people were the enemy. Right? He thought that they were the big problem. And so he's kicked all the Jews out of the territory. And that included all of the Jewish Christians who are part of the church. And so they've been gone for years and years. And a new emperor, a new ruler takes place. And he decides that it's not the Jewish people that are the problem. The Jewish people can come back. And so what you have is a church that has existed that is primarily all Gentile Christians, and so they love Jesus, they want to follow Jesus, but they're not familiar with the Jewish or the Old Testament covenant and its customs and how those things still have meaning to help people worship Jesus. They don't, they don't get that. And so you have this big group of Jewish Christians coming back, influx into the church, and they're people who love Jesus very much, want to follow Jesus very much, but they do find meaning in all these old covenant symbols and practices, and they, they do want to worship Jesus through these things. And so you can imagine that sparks may fly as you've got basically two different churches learning again how to be one church. And so the Apostle Paul writes the book of Romans to help them out with that. And he spends uh, well over half, the first half of the book, writing to them doctrine, just thick teaching about God and about who he is and what its grace is and what the gospel is and what it means to trust the gospel. If you've ever read Romans, you know that it is dense, thick stuff. You don't speed read Romans, right? You read Romans and you come back to it and go, I still don't get it. I'm on, I'm on read number nine and I don't know yet. <laughs> there are parts of it that you'll just scratch your head maybe for your whole life and go, God, this is what I think, but I can't get 100% sure. It is some complex, rich, splendid, wonderful stuff about God in the first 11 chapters. Uh, the, the technical term for it would be orthodoxy, teaching of the truth. Right? And then he starts, Paul does, in chapter 12 with, what would be called in high language orthopraxy. So this is how you practice the truth that we just talked about for 11 chapters. But where we're going to look today is kind of just the, the right in between of those two things. What does Paul say right between orthodoxy and teaching about God and orthopraxy and how to go live in light of who God is? That's what we're looking at today. This is Romans chapter 11. We'll start in verse 33. Paul says, oh... The depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Notice that exclamation point. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. So make sure you get what's happening here because this is just amazing to me. 
This is the Apostle Paul, the guy who's probably the best Christian to ever be a Christian other than Jesus himself, probably the most influential person in the history of Christianity outside of Christ. He wrote so much of the New Testament. He was very wise, very smart, very intellectually gifted. He had been trained really well. He knew how to write really well. And he spends all of this Bible space, 11 chapters, unpacking who God is, unpacking what God is about for 11 chapters. And I'm just being honest, because of my flesh, if I were able to write some of the stuff that he wrote, if I was able to just write all that and put it down, I would get to the end of it and I would be tempted to just mic drop. (laughs) go that's it that's the gospel boom and just walk off like it's not going to be written better than that this is good rich stuff this is it this is my best effort bam i would feel so good about everything i've just said but paul instead has written all this for 11 chapters and what does he say he goes oh trying to think about how to wind up this section on the glory of who god is and he goes oh I don't even know what to say next. I've done everything I can to say it as good as I can say it, and yet I'm looking at this great work that I've written, and I'm looking at it and going, oh, there's still so much. Oh, there's so much that I don't even know how to say. Oh, the depths, the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How much does God know? What's the quantity and quality of his knowledge? How often does God correctly apply that knowledge? That's, I believe, wisdom, right? It's, hey, I'm taking what I know is true and I'm living it out rightly. I'm, I'm applying it correctly. The knowledge and wisdom of God, is it, is it just a little higher than ours? Is it just a little bit more than maybe if you added three or four of us together? Right? Maybe if you added us all together and we start to get close to maybe even half of the quantity of God, what Paul says is, oh, God's riches and God's knowledge, they're they're so rich that it's a depth of riches. It's more than you can fathom. It's so much that he would never be able to get to the end of it where he suspended it. It's inexhaustible knowledge and wisdom. God is pure, perfectly pure in his knowledge. He's perfectly pure in his wisdom. There's never a moment when you're talking to God that you're telling him about something that he didn't already know. You ever think about that? I do sometimes when I'm praying. I'll be saying something to God, and then I'll be like, well, you already know that. And then I'll be like, well, you already know everything. <laughs> so, talking to God, the point is never to inform him. <laughs> He's already informed. He knows it all. You have your ideas and your plans, and they may be good, but he has all of the ideas and all of the plans for everything in every moment of human history and all of time to come. He knows all of it always perfectly. He is pure in his knowledge, which begs the question, doesn't it? Why do we so often live our lives based on our understanding instead of seeking his? He's pure in knowledge. He's pure in wisdom. He always applies it perfectly you sometimes in in your status of good motivation and good heart you still know the right thing to do and don't do it rightly some of you right now don't know where your glasses are hadn't seen them in two months you've got the system you know where you're supposed to put them so that you don't lose them again and you couldn't find them right now if you're like if i said here's a million dollars for your glasses you would go oh i don't know right Some of us are so limited when we pay attention to, hey, I have the best plans in the world, the best ideas and strategies in the world, but I don't even execute well. God is perfect in his wisdom. 
I just say to you, it's, it's good for us to feel small in light of God's perfect, pure knowledge and wisdom. He says, oh, the depths of his knowledge and wisdom. How, how deep? He says, listen, unsearchable are his judgments. Unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. When he says unsearchable are his judgments, right? he's saying his discernment. Right, the way that he assesses things, this discernment of God, it is pure and perfect. God never decides and makes a decision and then two days later goes, you know what, I was just way off on that. <laughs> I do, lots, okay? Just last night, I was watching a football game and, and my wife mentioned something about my family who's traveling to come see us. And she said it would be quicker if they came this way. And I decided to say, well, I don't think it would be quicker. And then we talked about that for a while, Right? And we went back and forth. There was no argument, but it was kind of, well, I don't think it'd be quicker. Well, I, think I, I, was, I don't think it'd be quicker. I was the one making that noise before I get in trouble when I get home. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was me, okay? I just need to say that, right? But we went back and forth several times, and eventually it, it like went through my head like, hey, you should have never said it won't be quicker, right? You should just let it be quicker, right? Whether it's quicker or not quicker, just let it be. That was the wrong idea. God never, ever has that moment where he goes, not not what I should have done. I assessed that wrongly. <laughs> this is the God who offers himself to you. This is the God who invites you into a relationship with himself. He's never had a mess up in his discernment. He's never done anything that he looks back on and goes, that was back in the days when I didn't have it figured out yet. Sure, wish I, let's laugh about how silly that was. God never does that. Because he's perfectly pure in his knowledge, in his wisdom, in his discernment in his morals, right, in what God actually does. He always does what is right. Listen, I don't understand how God lands on some of the things that he lands on. I don't know why cats exist, okay? And I know that some of you are upset, and we'll pray together when we're done, okay? But God obviously loves dogs more, okay? Right? I don't have a verse. I'm just saying it's written in my soul, okay? I, I don't know. You want to talk about something that maybe we could all agree? I don't know why snakes exist, right? Never seen a good one. Right? I, I'm not sure, right? Like about belly buttons and, and all, there's lots of stuff in the world that I'm just like, huh, how does that work? Right? Wonder why we didn't do it a little bit differently. I don't know why it rains on the days that I wish it wouldn't rain. I don't know why I can't get it to rain when I'm trying to grow grass. I don't know. I don't know why God didn't design my taste buds such that salad would taste phenomenal and ice cream would taste like garbage. Why did he not do that? I don't know why. I don't know why God would allow a young man that, that I had met some years ago in the last week to take his own life and take a life of another apparently. I don't know. I don't know why God would allow you to continue to hurt in the situation that you're in. I don't know. There might be some ideas that help us figure out some of this. Scripture points us to some extent that we could know and understand, but at the end of the day, it's inscrutable. Not fully understandable. God doesn't call us to fully understand him in the purity of his knowledge, his wisdom, his discernment, his morality, what he does. He doesn't call us to fully understand him and all that. He calls us to fully trust him and all that. Right? I don't have to fully understand to trust. In fact, I would argue that there probably has to be some limits on my understanding for there to be true trust present. The moment that I fully understand every single bit of what you're telling me, how much is it causing me to have to trust anymore, right? There's got to be some faith in there somewhere. 
Paul gets to the end of this big, long section going, hey, this, let me describe this God to you. And then he goes, oh, it's so big, I don't know how to say it. He said in verse 35, by the way, who's given a gift to God? You ever given something to God such that he might repay you? Now, you might have offered something to God from your heart, and that is sincere, and that is wonderful. That's worship. But you ever given him something, kind of thinking like, hey, God, I'm doing this, so just make sure don't forget about me. <laughs> God, I'm giving you this in my life, or I'm giving you obedience in this way, or God, I'm going to sacrifice some finances to make this happen in this person's life in your name. And God, I'm, I'm doing that. I'm giving this to you, but don't forget to get me on the flip. <laughs> right? Don't forget to take care of me when it comes back around. You ever have a friend who wants to hang out with you and you can tell real quick they want to hang out with you because of what you can accomplish for them or where you can take them? Not as much about you as a person as what you can do for them. He says nobody has ever given God a gift such that God goes, well, I really need to make sure I pay them back. I owe them. No way. He's perfect and perfectly pure in his self-sufficiency. Listen, this is the most wonderful freeing truth that that I heard in a long time. God doesn't need you. He wants you. You aren't a, an absolutely vital part of God being able to do whatever it is that God wants to do for his glory. He can do it without you. The weight of the world doesn't hinge on you. Listen, he doesn't need you. He wants you. In his holiness, he is perfectly pure in self-sufficiency. Which leads Paul to say right, that, that from him and to him and through him are all things how can it get bigger than that (laughs) he goes the place where you start and the place where you end and then the whole journey in between the through part that's all about god it's all about you seeing and understanding this heartbeat that says oh the depths of the wisdom and knowledge and riches and god oh the depths oh god see here's why i can just tell you why we're kind of pressing into this idea of holy because if you look at and think about the way that, that Scripture talks about God being holy, that Scripture talks about holiness in general, and the way that we talk about it in 2023, you'll see a, a stark contrast. Scripture talks about God's holiness in Exodus. It says that God's holiness falls on Mount Sinai. Go and, re- go and read that account. What happens when God's presence shows up in a physically observable way on the mountain? Thick, black, smoke the ground shaking like an earthquake at the foot of this great mountain that god is at flames are shooting out all over the place there is lightning cracking off and thunder all over the place it said that they heard the blast of a trumpet that was so loud that it shook in their ears i bet it shook their intestines it was loud it was scary so much that they would say to their leader hey tell god don't do that again tell him don't talk to us tell him just talk to you please god shows up they went whoa in the Old Testament, right, the, the presence of God was specifically, particularly to be found in the tabernacle and then in the Holy of Holies is where God's presence dwelled. If you remember that, right, it was behind this specific curtain that only one person could go behind only once a year. That was the high priest. And when he went in there once a year, he wore bells draped on his outfit so that they could hear him jingling around as he was moving. And he wore a, a rope tied around his waist so that if he died in there because he had sin that he hadn't been sincere with God about and he came into the holy presence of God and died, they had a rope so they could drag him out because there wasn't nobody else going in there to get him. 
right? 2 Samuel chapter 6, this same ark that was the presence of God's holiness, observable, manifest to people. This ark of the covenant, this guy named Uzzah reaches out and touches the ark. He wasn't touching it to try to be a cool guy. He wasn't trying to get a picture to put on Instagram and go, hashtag, got the ark, right? He wasn't doing that. The ark was about to fall off and over onto the edge of a mountain, and he reached out to stabilize it, but God had never allowed that to happen. God had never made that okay. God had been really clear. You should not put human hands on this holy you know what he did he died he died it's the holiness of god you want to go new testament matthew i believe it's chapter 17 the mount of transfiguration jesus's three closest earthly friends are with him as they go up on this mountain and they have this amazing experience and the veil is kind of pulled back a little bit and they get to see some of the bright radiant holiness of god and they have some stuff to say to jesus in a minute but you know what they do first they fall on their faces fall down in the book of acts saul is out hunting down christians and he experiences the physical uh, appearance of this bright presence of god you know what he does he goes blind and he falls off his donkey right he says hey who are you lord and why do you persecute me check that listen he says i don't even know who you are but whoever you are i'm giving you a knees quaking sense of respect to say who are you lord and why do you persecute me? that's the bible when it talks about holiness that's the Bible when it talks about this God who is pure in all of these ways. In every way, he's perfectly pure. That's what the Bible says. How do we talk about holiness? Think about the last five times you heard somebody use the term holy in a non-church context. What was it about? There's holy moly. I don't know what a moly is. I don't know if you do. I don't know where that came from, but we say, holy moly. Holy cow. Don't know who started that one, but holy cow. Right? I've, I've smelled cows before. I'm not convinced yet. Right? Holy moly, holy cow. I've heard holy cannoli. Right? Throw a little love out to the pasta lovers. Right? Holy cannoli. I've heard holy guacamole. Right? Somebody likes that. I don't know who, and I'm not going to call you out, but I heard that. Somebody was like, that's mine right there. I said it on the way here today. Holy guacamole, right? And then last but not least, I'm not even going to go there, but there's a whole range of different terms used to say holy excrement. Holy waste. See, when the Bible talks about the holiness of God, what happens is people are rightfully humble. People go, whoa, that is big and huge, and I'm bowing down to whatever that is. Holy God. They're shaken to their core in a way that's good for them. And when we talk about holy, we talk about cannoli, pasta, poop. God's saying, see me as who I really am. Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, is saying, make sure that when you read all 11 chapters of this book, when you try to stretch your heart around God and try to understand these things, make sure when you get to the end of it, you leave a lot of room for you just to go, even as much as I understand that, it's still just, whoa. God is holy. I would say this, that right recognition of God's holiness prompts our humility. 
that when we rightly recognize the holiness of God, when we let ourselves intentionally, purposefully read Scripture and see God as He is, when we let ourselves, not, not with our preconceived notions, but just look at what the Bible really tells us about God, when we rightly see and recognize His holiness, it will prompt our humility. We will want to live humble lives. You see Paul say it at the end there in the last verse, chapter 11, he says, right? Glory to Him. Right? To Him be glory forever. I'm hoping that today we feel a healthy sense of appropriate weightiness as we consider the holiness of God. Because, listen, we can talk about mercy and forgiveness and sin and justice. We talk about substitution. We talk about all these things that really matter deeply to the Christian understanding of who God is. But none of those things can exist if they're not founded on the understanding that God is holy. But it leaves us with a problem, right? So God, in His holiness, is ineffable, awe-inspiring purity of God. But, but what about when the Bible calls us holy? What about when the Bible tells us to be holy? It, it can't be talking about that, right? <laughs> Maybe kind of like that in some ways. Maybe letting that reign over us in some ways and inform us in some ways. But, but I know me well enough to know that, that I've never done anything in my life that's ineffably, awe-inspiringly pure, Right? My best efforts in the world, I remember I made Jamie one time when we were dating a, a vase of flowers because I thought it was going to be something she could keep with forever. I made it out of construction paper and cardboard and stuff, and it looked like absolute kindergartner who was not paying attention when they did it, right? And she kind of acted like she felt that way too, and it still hurts my feelings, but whatever, right? You laugh at my stuff too loud, I'm going to say something, girl. Anyway, I know I've never been holy in that way in terms of my practical actions of my life. So when Scripture's calling me to be that, we got a problem. What is Scripture calling us to? I think the verse helps us. We'll read two verses in chapter 12. I believe Paul is telling us, this is how you can give glory to him forever and ever. Amen. Verse 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing it you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It's as if Paul got to the end of just trying to gaze on this big, huge holiness of God and his heart is overwhelmed and he knows he's writing to some people that he's trying to lead and he's going, if they grasp what I've just said to them, they're going to have a hard time knowing what to do about it. So he says, here's what I want you to do about it. And he doesn't start this practical section of the book with a bunch of commands and sharp, do this, don't do this. He doesn't give them a list of morality. Instead, he says, I appeal to you. I urge you, please. With all my heart, this is what I would beg of you. I appeal to you by the mercies of God. Another translation I think says it helpfully. It says in view of God's mercies. Meaning that if I'm looking at how merciful God is to me, that will drive me right, to do this. It says present yourself to God. Present is a purposeful act. Right? Somebody might see your schoolwork, but if they see it without you presenting it to them, that's called cheating. Right? I know, unfortunately, right? Back in the day, not yesterday or anything, a long time ago. Right? 
right? Somebody might have access to something of yours, but if you haven't given them access, if you haven't presented it to them, right, it's them taking, it's not you giving. He says, present, be purposeful in this. Present yourself as living sacrifices to God. Let what you do with your eyes, with your hands, with your body, with your mind, let what you do with your life, with your choices, with your decisions, let all of that be a living sacrifice to God. When we're called in Scripture to be holy, I believe that what Scripture is talking about when it talks about our personal holiness is the purposeful, spirit-empowered practice of arranging our lives to see and show God's holiness. It's when I go, I see this big, huge, holy God. I've caught a glimpse of him. And so on purpose, I want to present my life and arrange my life around seeing him, understanding that holiness more and more, and showing that holiness out to the world. Because my goodness, they've got to see this. Present your life to him. Wrap your life around his holiness. He says, lastly, verse 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewal of your mind. To be conformed is simply to fall in line with a set of behaviors. It's there is a, a standard, there's a mold, and you push yourself into it. This is what it means to be conformed. He says, don't be conformed to the standards of the world around you. Don't try to fit into the mold. Instead, be transformed by God, starting with the renewal of your mind. Several years back, I have tons of these stories. I realized as I was writing this down earlier that I shared a similar story last week. I have a lot of these stories of when I started to exercise again, right? I need to have more stories about when I didn't stop, okay? But that's a whole other thing. But a buddy told me that we were going to start swimming. So, hey, man, I go to the pool and swim laps. Come down there. We'll, we'll do it, man. He's like, I promise It'll wear you out. It's good exercise. said, all right. Showed up at the rec center. Got my swimsuit on. Jumped in the pool. We start swimming. He's about six foot six. And obviously, very clearly to me, I know nothing about swimming. But within 15 seconds, it was obvious. He's had some training. Okay? He's got one of those cool, sleek hats on. The water's just bridging right over the top of his head as if it's like, I'm like, dude, this is insane. He's doing it. And he's just going for it. And I'm in the water doing my best. He later told me once we got to be really good friends, he's like, man, that day it kind of looked like you were fighting the water. I'm just being like, like, it looked like you were mad at it and you were just bet, like, trying to beat it off of you. Right? He's breezing up and down, running his laps, doing his deal. And he sees me over there. I'm just trying to do everything he does. At one point he stops and he starts doing high knees down the lane, picking his knees up like Bo Jackson doing some training in the water. So I'm like, here I come. right? And then I start slipping on the slippery black tiles that make the lines out of They should tell you those are slippery, by the way. And I'm looking foolish in front of adults and it's embarrassing. right? And all this is going on and, and I'm swimming some more. I'm trying to do what he's doing. He's swimming back to swimming laps. I'm swimming some more. And he says, hey, man, you've done a lot for today. Like it's your first day. You've done a lot. And I'm like, no, no, man, I'm good. I'm good. In my head, I'm like, if you're swimming, I'm swimming. <laughs> He's out there like just like a ski boat just across the water. Right? I, I'm out there like a pontoon that needs some maintenance. Right? <laughs> like I'm the one that's on the water and other people are coming by like, hey, you think we should go ask them do they need help or not? Like that was me. Right? The answer was yes. Right? 
right? And I struggled through this whole thing because I'm like, if you're doing it, I'm doing it. My pride will not allow me to even share with you how a little bit later there was a moment in the, the restroom of the rec center where I started to see stars and I got really concerned about how bright they were getting. And I got overheated and hot and my friend actually went and, and pulled my car around and cranked the AC and like helped me walk out to the car. How I, It's embarrassing. I wouldn't tell you that, right? My pride wouldn't let me tell you that the little girl that worked at the front desk, young teenage girl, so sweet, actually saw the, the situation I was in walking down this painfully long hallway to my car and went and got me a cold Sprite and was like, here, this may help. I'm like, may help? All I did was swim, right? Like, like my pride wants to be like, get that out of here. I don't need that. And then actually my reality was like, please God, right? And I'm like, right? You see, I, I saw what he did. And you know what I thought? I'll just go force myself to do exactly what he does, and I will strain myself to conform into his pattern, and I'll be like him. And man, it was painful and embarrassing, and it didn't work at all. But you know what I did the next day? I got up early, went to the store, bought myself some goggles, and said, no, I'm doing this. And I didn't go and try to do what he was doing every day anymore. I went and did what he told me to do. I went and listened to the leadership and the guidance of this guy who was trying to guide me. And I did what he called me to do. And the more that he explained it to me and the more that he gave me pointers and the more that I watched him do what he was doing, eventually I became a decent swimmer. Because no longer was I trying to shove myself into his mold. Instead, I was trying to let his leadership actually change me. I was no longer trying to look like a swimmer, even though it was obvious that I wasn't one. I was trying to actually become one. Paul says, look at this big, huge, holy God. He's good for you. Let your knees quake just a little bit. He's kind and he's good and he's gracious. He would never harm you. He would do things in your life or allow things in your life that would hurt. He will discipline you. He will hurt you, but he will never hurt you in a way that would be for your prolonged harm. It's always for your best. He's big and he's kind and he's gracious and he's amazing and he's splendid and he's beautiful and he's wonderful, but he's holy. And when we forget that, everything starts to get out of whack, doesn't it? We lose our sense of reverence. We lose our sense of humility. And so today, the question maybe for some of us who have known God for a long time, as we see Paul say, be transformed how? By the renewing of your mind. This is speaking of an ongoing, regularly, continual process. The renewing of your mind. Listen, God's transformation process starts with my thinking so the question for us practically today is just simply this before this moment before today before you heard me say what i think before you heard me try to point us to what i see god's word saying what would you say if you were asked what it means for god to be holy if we got beyond one or two questions about god being holy and well, what about you being holy and how does all that like what would you even Where do we need to ask God to please open our eyes to see him as high and holy? Not to lose the intimacy and the, the personal nature of his care and concern for us, 
but, but, but not to hold on to that so that we lose sight of his great and grand holiness. Where do we need to ask God? God, change my thinking such that I won't play with things that you died to pay for. Such that I won't toy with things or I won't take nonchalantly things that you did to me. Where do we need to think differently about the holiness of God? Some of us today may know, hey, this is where it is in my life where I'm just living like God doesn't even care if I pursue his holiness. And I would urge you towards repentance. I would urge you towards saying to God, God, I commit to that being different. The band's going to come. We're going to sing. I want to invite you just to respond to God in a true way, in a sincere way. If that for you is standing and singing with all your heart, please do that. If that for you is sitting in silence and just hearing that God is holy and letting that wash over your soul, please do that. Find somebody, pray with them. Maybe you're here today and you go, hey, I don't know that I know this God that you're talking about. I know about him, but I don't know him. Find somebody, come find me, let's talk through it. But don't hear that this God is this holy and do nothing with it. Let's pray. God, I do ask that you would overwhelm our wrong thoughts about you. God, it would be an act of great grace if you would break up all our false conceptions. God, if you would point out in our lives all the places where we're, we're toying around with you. We're toying around with the life that you've called us to live. The things you've called us to and the things you've called us away from. God, would you show us those things? God, and would you lead us? Would you remind us? Would you prompt us? Would you draw us? daily, moment by moment and what it looks like for us to wrap our lives around your holiness so that we might see you more clearly show you more clearly God show us what that looks like here in this moment in our lives for each one of us show us what that looks like give us courage to respond now in sincerity lead us the glory of your name, for our joy being yours.